We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 134 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 1, Plugs Out, Part 2. We were going very fast. NASA was behind schedule, as always. And we were running tests without taking time to really look at the data. I said to Gus, if it doesn't check out well, if you have a glitch or an anomaly... Get the hell out of there. That was Roger Moore and Wally Sherrall commenting on the accident. Now, continuing where we left off last time on the launch pad. In the clean room, despite the intense heat, Babbitt, Gleaves, Rees, Hawkins, and Clemens, now joined by Rogers, continued to fight the flames. From time to time, one or the other would have to leave to gasp for air. One by one, they removed the booster cover cap and the outer and inner hatches, prying out the last one five and a half minutes after the alarm sounded. By now, several more workers had joined the rescue attempt. At first, no one could see the astronauts through the smoke, only feel them. There were no signs of life. By the time the firemen arrived five minutes later, the air had cleared enough to disclose the bodies. Chaffee was still strapped in his couch, but Grissom and White were so intertwined below the hatch seal that it was hard to tell which was which. Fourteen minutes after the first outcry of fire, physicians G. Fred Kelly and Alan C. Harder reached the smoldering clean room. The doctors had difficulty removing the bodies because the spacesuits had fused with nylon netting inside the spacecraft. When Deke Slayton and Stu Rosa arrived at Pad 34, they saw ambulances waiting in vain at the base of the launch tower. They boarded the small elevator and rode to level A8, 218 feet up, and headed across the swing arm to the clean room. Even before they arrived, they were assaulted by the stench of burned electrical insulation and incinerated plastics. At last reaching the end of the swing arm, they could see it. The command module square hatchway flush against the side of the white room and the capsule hatch open, and they could see the astronauts with their white spacesuits. Both Slayton and Rosa were informed about Grissom and White's entanglement in the melted nylon netting. Slayton gripped the rail just above the hatchway and leaned into the cabin of Apollo 1. He could see the familiar configuration 
of the command module cabin, three couches side by side, the broad center instrument panel amid a forest of switches, knobs, and controls, warning lights still glowed amber on the blackened panel, much of the once spotless cabin was covered with soot. On the right side of the cabin, Slayton could see Chaffee, his spacesuit form motionless in his couch, still strapped in. The other two couches were empty. Slayton looked down below the edge of the hatchway and spotted two helmeted heads, both with clear face plates still closed. Right below the hatch were a pair of legs, doubled up, from which the layers of the spacesuit material had been burned off. It was impossible to tell who was Grissom and who was White. Slayton told Kelly and Harder not to do anything more until photographs could be taken. Then he and Rosa turned away from the blackened cabin of Apollo 1, carrying the smell of fire and death with them for the rest of their lives. Here's how Stu Rosa recalled the visit. Most of their suits were still white. Uh, you did not look in and see charred bodies. As more anguished officials gathered, the pad was cleared of unnecessary personnel. Guards were posted and official photographers were summoned. All through the night, physicians labored to complete their grim task. After the autopsies were finished, coroner reported that the deaths were accidental, resulting from asphyxiation caused by inhalation of toxic gases. The crew did have second and third degree burns, but these were not severe enough to have caused the deaths. Some members of the press were given access to Apollo 1. This is a clip of one of the press corps describing what he saw when he viewed the interior of the spacecraft. Some uh, places you could see uh, right down to the clear, uh, I presume, copper. Um, the wires were ragged. Ragged meaning the insulation was ragged where the fire had, you know, eaten away more in one place, uh, less than another. The bottom of the spacecraft below the frame was littered with strips, again, clumps of debris which were unrecognizable. I noticed a, a small green uh, piece of har harness, which I believe was from a from a parachute, uh, not parachute, a uh, you know the green, the restraining harness rather, was uh, approximately uh, midway between White's uh, White's position and the uh, Chafee's uh, position. <sighs> the flight plan was resting up against the, the sidearm controller between Grissom and White's flight plan. It was badly charred, but still recognizable as a book. The pages looked very, very brittle, brown. Surprisingly, there was one one page that was almost at the top of, uh, of uh, Ed White's seat, about where his head would have been, where the printing was still legible and only the edges of the, the page were, were scorched. Uh, it's almost a uniformly uh, slate gray interior with uh, one, one corner appeared to me to be brownish white, to be discolored in a brownish white uh, deposit, but I couldn't tell if that was the lighting or if it was actually the, the color. It was way over in the far right hand corner. 
Uh, the head supports for, uh, for Grissom and Chafee were, were in the up position, but with the uh, side sidearms folded down. It's a, uh, it's a curve with these two arms that would come up and hold them around the side of the head. These were folded down like the, uh, like the arms of a restraining chair. White, White's uh, head support was folded down and beneath the frame to, to permit access into the, uh, into the spacecraft. There were uh, hand marks on the uh, sooted, uh, soot-covered handrail uh, above the, uh, the hatch. This is part of the facility. This is what they grab as they go into the spacecraft. It's, uh, it should be sort of a shiny white. It was covered with soot, and there were hand marks on it. Uh, there was some. There was a splattering of oil around the the frame of the uh, the white room that that actually touches the uh, command module. I couldn't find out where this came from though. There were two hatches. One, the boost protect cover hatch. Uh, these were resting outside the white room in the in the service room, which is part of the structure service tower. Uh, it was white with a black sooty border. I counted four finger streaks uh, through the suit on the upper left-hand corner, and there were smudgy finger marks on the also on the left side. Obviously, someone from the outside, one of the launch crew, trying to get it off. The window was totally dark, uh, uh, as a window would be from a fire. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was uh, the darkness behind the, the window that prevented me from seeing through it or whether it was just black, and I suspect it was black. And the, uh, the internal hatch, which is part of the, uh, you know, the permanent part of the spacecraft, is a, a brownish color uh, normally and with an aluminum border, and it was blackened all along the, the bottom edge uh, of it from soot. There was a very... Uh, noticeable odor, by the way, when you walked right into the, the service room. You entered the service room first and then the white room second. When you opened the door, there was a, a bitter, uh, the bitter smell of smoke. There's no, no other way to describe it. It became more pronounced when you went into the white room, and as we crouched at the uh, entrance of the, the hatch to the command module, it became even, even more uh, more pronounced. It, it smelled like an electrical fire too, by the way. You could, you could smell burned insulation. The reporter continued with a description of the exterior of the capsule. As you walked into the service room, there were two pieces of, of uh, polyurethane foam laying right there off the, the edge of the step. They appeared to be about three to three feet long and about a foot wide. They were charred all along the edge. I tried to find out where these came from. I, I, no one would tell me. By the way, if we were not permitted to ask any questions of anybody up in the, in the top of the tower. That was taboo. Uh, there was also a, a, a discarded and uh, crumpled expansion hose of the type that would bring in uh, gas. One of these large hoses, about eight eight or ten inches in diameter. It was just laying there with this, this foam rubber. The white boost uh, boost protective cover cap was still on the on the spacecraft. 
Uh, that extends down, you know, over the apex of the command module. Most of the, the boost protect cover, about 270 degrees around the, the main body of the spacecraft, were removed, showing the, the normal gray surface of the command module. There was a sheet of black plastic, or the remains of a sheet of black plastic, that was uh, had been placed over the command module to protect the boost protect cover. And it obviously had either been ripped away or burned away. There was only a strip left hanging like a like a black mourner's ribbon through the legs of the the uh, escape tower. We could see three control panels at the base of the command module where the hatches were open and there was ground support or ground test equipment hooked up to it. The first one that we encountered was marked, had a little plate over it, was marked fuel control panel. All the wire bundles in here appeared to be moderately burned and there was there was a trace of smoke, uh, a smoke pattern trace, a triangular trace coming up from the this open panel up along the side, the gray side of the the uh, command module. Uh, the next panel that we encountered, which was uh, oh, three, four feet away, was marked oxidizer control panel. There was greater evidence of charring and burning here with wires melted together, fused together. It was, it was extremely difficult to recognize individual components or even wire bundles. Then we got around to a, another panel where the plate had either fallen off or been taken off. I'm told nothing was changed out there since the incident, so it must be presumed that the, the plate indicating what panel that was must have fallen off. By far, this was the most damage. This, the, the fire here in this panel had been so intense that there really wasn't anything left in it except uh, uh, mounting brackets for the electronic components. This was immediately adjacent to the spacecraft umbilical, which was still plugged in. There were, this was where the, the greatest amount of damage, by the way, was uh, noticeable on the outside of the spacecraft. If you reference it to the access hatch, uh, it would have been to the immediate right of the hatch, in other words, approximately over Chafee's shoulder. And I was speaking about the exterior. Uh, there were small blisters on the heat shield here. There were some small pieces of this gray material which were, were gone, like, like paint would flake off and showing the next level down of the, the heat shield. The American flag was uh, uh, obscured, uh, not totally obscured, but partially obscured by gray soot, looked very dingy. And uh, the, the letters United States were also covered with uh, soot. I would say that this uh, pie-shaped segment of, of soot and uh, uh, charring on the outside of the spacecraft was a wedge approximately uh, 30 to 40 degrees and extending up uh, to the white boost protect cover. All around the outside of the spacecraft there were bits and pieces of uh, carbonized material. It was hard to say. It looked like paper, but it, it, it may have been that plastic sheet. I, I don't know. There was a, a table about three or four feet from the this one bad area of damage, and the desktop was just littered with, with brittle carbonized material. There were, I counted at least, fire extinguishers, 
on the outside of the spacecraft, at least 12. Some obviously had been used because they were just thrown uh, in a corner. Well, let's, they, were, they were upright and mounted, some were upright and mounted where you would expect them to be in a, in a facility like that. Others obviously had been used. You could tell from the, from the way the, the nozzles had been pulled out of their restraining uh, hoops and, uh, and, then all, and then later just thrown over in a corner. I don't know if all were used or not, but some obviously had. Now, there's a gap between the command module and service module, which is later covered by a, a fairing when they get ready for flight. Oh, by the way, there were several gas masks on the floor just dropped. Uh, there were also uh, approximately a half dozen of uh, these uh, uh, very thin, transparent rubber gloves of the type that surgeons uh, would wear. They were very tight, thin uh, rubber gloves. These were thrown uh, on the floor also and kicked over to one side. Uh, again, I couldn't find out who had used them. They had obviously had been used in handling something that was dirty and uh, covered with ash. Uh, there was also a, uh, an asbestos jacket uh, thrown over a guardrail leading out of the, the service room. Well, I was going to tell you about the, what was visible at the top of the service module. There is a, a sheet of uh, aluminized mylar to very bright silver cover. Uh, and in places where the fire hadn't touched it, it was still very bright and shiny. But over by the umbilical connection, it was discolored, it had burned through in some places, and it, it looked, the, the, the top surface of it looked like the crumpled foil of a, of a cigarette pack that had laid out, out in the sun too long. Okay, we then went down to the seventh level, which is the, uh, the floor immediately below the command module, and here we uh, could see the service module. There was a, an access hatch removed from the side of the, the uh, shiny aluminum and white service module. It was marked cryo storage access hatch. Cryo storage access hatch. I estimated it CRYO for cryogenic. It appeared to be about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. You could see some cabling through this opening. Uh, which had obviously been burned, and the insulation was hanging in shreds. It was blackened and had rather ragged edges. Uh, going around to where the umbilical connection was to the command module and looking up, you could see smudge marks visible on the white underbelly of the command module. Here, as on the next floor above, there were pieces of soot, carbon, and ash around the floor. There were also fire extinguishers here, but they did not appear to have been used. There was some odd grease drippings. Grease or oil? I, I believe it was oil. I counted roughly a dozen to 16 long strings of oil which had run down the side of the command module. It appeared to be the same oil that I had seen evidence of around the hatch of the command module. And they just had run down in long, long strings uh, uh, for the entire length that I could see in that, that floor. And then it dried. That was, by the way, the only, uh, the only really noticeable sign of anything to the exterior of the service module.
And lastly, we have a news clip that was released to the public. Apollo astronauts Roger Chaffee, Edward White, and Gus Grissom lose their lives in a tragic flash fire aboard their grounded space capsule. The tragedy occurred during a simulated countdown for the first flight of the Apollo program, whose goal is to put a man on the moon by 1970. Grissom and White were veterans of space flight. Chaffee, a rookie. During a drill similar to this, the entire three-man crew was engulfed by flames. A blue-ribbon panel of space experts is investigating, aided by impounded NASA films and tape recordings. Grissom was one of the seven original astronauts. White was America's first spacewalker. Chaffee, never in space, had long experience as a jet test pilot. He was proud and happy that his first flight was to initiate the Apollo program. When the tragedy struck, one of the astronauts shouted, Fire in the spacecraft! In a few seconds, all three were victims of the swift inferno which left the capsule a blackened shell. One reporter said it looked like the inside of a furnace. Investigators theorized that perhaps a short circuit or electrical overload may have sparked the blaze. 27 would-be rescuers were all overcome by smoke and heat. astronauts Chaffee, White, and Grissom, martyred heroes who gave their lives in total dedication to duty. Their memory will forever be honored. During this time, visits to the families of the three fallen astronauts took place. In Houston, astronaut Alan Bean coordinated astronauts and wives to visit the families. Bean called his wife, Sue, and sent her to the home of Martha Chaffee until Collins could get there. Wally Sherall's wife, Joe, and Chuck Berry, the Space Center's chief physician, would go to Betty Grissom's. Neil Armstrong's wife, Jan, would go to her next-door neighbor, Pat White's, and Bill Anders, another member of the third group, and like being a rookie, would follow. It was already dark when Bill Anders arrived at the ranch house belonging to Ed and Pat White. Even among the astronauts, Ed White had always stood out, a strapping six-footer who was barely missed becoming an Olympic hurdler. He was known as one of the finest physical specimens in the astronaut office, and perhaps more than any astronaut except John Glenn, White subscribed to their all-American image. In 1965, after he became the first American to walk in space, White easily wore the mantle of national hero. There appeared to be no limit to how far he might go. Ed and Pat seemed perfectly matched. Few women were so devoted to their husbands. Now, Bill Anders would have to tell Pat that her husband was dead. A short while ago, Pat had picked up her daughter from a ballet lesson. When she arrived home, her neighbor Jan Armstrong was waiting silently for her. She must have been surprised, then confused. After all, Ed was at the Cape. He wasn't flying tonight. And then she realized something was wrong. But it wasn't up to one astronaut wife to tell another that her darkest nightmare had come true. 
that task most often fell to another astronaut, in this case, Bill Anders. On the next morning, Chris Kraft and Bob Gilruth visited each of the family's homes. They could only offer their sympathies and the full support of the Manned Spacecraft Center and NASA. Kraft found the right words hard to come by. It would have been easier to simply hug the widows and kids and let the tears run free. Gilruth was in the same condition, shaken and filled with sorrow. But their feelings were nothing compared to those of the wives and children who had just lost their husbands and fathers. Somehow, they managed to keep their voices steady and to let them all know that they weren't alone. Harrison Storms from North American Aviation also made it a point to visit the families and speak to all the wives and children. Then, he too visited the remains of Apollo 1. Storms mounted the gantry elevator and rode to the top for a look at what had been the most sophisticated machine in history a mere 48 hours earlier. Now it was a smoking hulk. Storm stepped up to the hatch and looked in. He saw the charred breathing hoses hanging loose above the blackened couches, the priceless instrument panels now soot-covered, unrecognizable. The fire had been ferocious, but selective. There, on the center couch where White's head had been, was the flight manual, his pages almost untouched. It seemed impossible that such destruction could have been wrought by a few pounds of Velcro and nylon netting. Everything in the spacecraft had been evaluated for flammability. Both NASA and North American had done extensive burn tests with Velcro in pure oxygen, but only at the spaceflight pressure of 5 pounds per square inch. At that pressure, Velcro burned at the acceptable rate of half an inch a second. But after the fire, when they ignited samples in a 16 pounds per square inch oxygen atmosphere, they found the fire dancing along the tips of the hairy fabric at five times that speed. The astronauts naturally had been in love with the stuff from the beginning of the Gemini program. It was the perfect solution to the practical problem of weightlessness, and they had added it in bits and pieces over the month as they prepared for the first Apollo flight. Since adding a swatch of Velcro seemed unworthy of an engineering drawing, the process had fallen through the cracks, and by the morning of January 27th, there were several uninterrupted strips of Velcro running alongside the instrument panels. Memorial services for the Apollo 1 crewmen were held in Houston on January 30th, although their bodies had been flown north from Kennedy for burial. Grissom and Chaffee would be buried in Arlington National Cemetery and White at the Military Academy at West Point. It was a cold winter day in Washington. The hoofbeats of riderless horses, the creaking wheels of caissons, 
the folded flags and grieving widows, and the echo of taps over the hills of Arlington chilled the country with images still fresh of the dead president who had set these engines in motion. In the political maneuver and public dismay that followed, almost everyone would lose sight of the reason these three men were national heroes in the first place. They had volunteered for the most dangerous mission in history. Betty Grissom asked Bob Gilruth, Walt Williams, and Chris Kraft to be pallbearers for Gus. This is how Kraft recalled it. We all flew to Washington by NASA airplane and spent the night before the ceremonies at the Georgetown Inn. We sat up late talking about Gus, Ed, and Roger with the families, and sometime after dinner, Vice President Hubert Humphrey came into the room. Hubert was a friend of the space program, and we had all met him on several occasions. Now, he sat with us and drank and reminisced about the astronauts. He was a comfort to Betty Grissom and Martha Chaffee, and his concern and caring were so strong that it was 2 a.m. before we broke up and went to bed. Hubert somehow made things a little better for everyone that night. I'd been in Arlington Cemetery as a boy to see the tomb of the unknown soldier, and I'd watched the funeral and burial of President Kennedy on television. But that morning, walking behind the caisson carrying Gus Grissom in a casket was something I never want to do again. The cold, gusty, and penetrating day made our task all the more uncomfortable. The eulogies, military regalia, rifle salutes, and the bugler playing taps are familiar to everyone. But when that caisson carried my friend and I had this aching feeling of responsibility for putting him there, it made me not only cry, but resolve that it would never happen again. This determination to make sure that these men did not die without cause, I believe gave us all the strength to continue our job of landing men on the moon. It also brought us all closer together and made our responsibilities crystal clear. After the funeral, while still at the gravesite, a reporter conducted a brief, heartbreaking interview with Roger Chaffee's parents. Here's the clip. Roger was so energetic, so enthusiastic about the whole program. And we're sure that as long as he had to leave this world, he's happy in his spaceship anyway. No anger. What's down at Cape Kennedy? What will continue? What will follow? None whatsoever. The price of progress comes high at times. The astronauts had always known it was only a matter of time. Jiminy had had its share of close calls, none worse than when Jiminy 8 began tumbling out of control. 
Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott had narrowly escaped with their lives, and the Jiminy pilots had taken some calculated risk. For example, everyone knew that the Jiminy ejection seat and parachute that served as the only means of escape in a launch emergency was effective only under very limited conditions. And there were other risks, not only on Jiminy, but on the comparatively primitive Mercury flights. Looking back, it was not only superb hardware and outstanding people in space and on the ground that had averted tragedy, it was also luck. But the lunar missions were much more complex, and among the astronauts, there was an unspoken feeling that it was only a matter of time before their luck ran out. Gus Grissom had known that. Sometime during Jiminy, he had told his wife, if there's ever a serious accident in the program, it's probably going to be me. And shortly before his accident, at a press conference, he had said, if we die, we want people to accept it. We're in a risky business. But he was talking about dying in space. If Grissom, White, and Chaffee had burned up in re-entry, if they had perished in the fireball of an exploding booster, if their parachutes hadn't opened and they had plummeted into the ocean, any of those fates would have been easier to accept. The terrible shock of this January night and the irony was that they died while their spacecraft was sitting on the pad, with technicians all around them, safety just on the other side of the hatch, and yet no one had been able to save them. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.